Our scripture lesson as listed in the bulletin is from John chapter 10, but before I read that, I decided yesterday after the bulletin was printed that I wanted to read something else first. I want to read Psalm 82 on page 677, 677 in the Pew Bible. This is the psalm that Jesus quotes in our text from John 10. Uh, Jesus quotes this psalm. It's a psalm of Asaph, and uh, it's one in which uh, God is seen speaking collectively to all the judges of Israel who are called to represent him and condemning them for being bad judges. And then the psalmist at the end, in the last verse, asks God to arise and judge the people so that they could have good judgment, uh, good judges. Uh, the human judges have failed, and so the psalmist says, God, you come do it for us, uh, because they need that good judgment from God. Psalm 82, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth you shall inherit all nations. And then our text is taken from John chapter 10, page 1,236, 1,236. I'll begin reading at verse 22 where we began last week, but uh, the focus is on verses uh, 31 to the end of the chapter. John 10, verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long will you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are a blasphemer because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, 
Though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. And many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, one of the main themes of the Gospel of John is the divinity of Jesus of Nazareth. That this man, Jesus, whom the disciples saw first at the Jordan River where they went out to hear John the Baptist preach, this man is also God. That the Word who was with God and was God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so throughout the Gospel, John has been, John the Gospel writer has been emphasizing the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, including in the passage that we looked at last Sunday evening where Jesus says that uh, I and my Father are one. Now that statement taken by itself could merely mean the Father and I are of one mind, which would not necessitate Jesus being divine because uh, you can agree with God on something and say God and I are of one mind, that sin is a bad thing and uh, love is a good thing. Uh, we are of one, one mind with God on that, but that doesn't make us divine. But in the context, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he says that with regard to a promise that he has just made, which uh, can only be fulfilled if he himself is divine. No one will snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. No one's greater than God. And if no one is greater than God, and both of us can do this, then, then both of us are divine. You know, it would be impossible for any mere human to make that kind of promise. No one can snatch you out of my hand. What, what Jesus is saying there is what Paul says in Romans 8. You know, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in life, nothing in death. We are secure, secure in His hands, in the Father's hands and in the Son's hands. We're secure in both of them because both of them are divine and both of them are able to keep that promise. And so when He says the Father and I are one with respect to this promise, it means that Jesus must also be divine. And the Jews uh, recognized that He was making Himself equal with God. And so they took up stones to stone him because they didn't believe it. They didn't believe uh, he was God. They thought he was a mere man claiming to be God, when in fact the truth was he was God who had become man without ceasing to be God. Well, they're about to stone him. And Jesus decides to talk to them, which seems like... Uh, my perspective, a crazy thing to do. It's talking to them that has riled them up so that they're ready to stone him. And he wants to talk to him some more. But Jesus is wiser than any of us, or at least wiser than me. And uh, he knows what he's doing here. And he speaks to them about their scriptures. And it's what he says uh, to them from Psalm 82 that I want to consider with you tonight. 
We want to look first at the fact that Jesus makes reference to Psalm 82 as your law. Now, you could look at that expression, uh, your law. Uh, does it not say in your law uh, that uh, Jesus is somehow distancing himself from the Old Testament, saying it's, it's your Bible, it's not mine? Well, that would be an entirely wrong inference to take uh, from the expression, your law. Uh, we know from other parts of the Bible that Jesus very much considers himself to be uh, uh, governed by the Old Testament. Uh, he's constantly pointing to his works and saying, it's the works that the Father gave me to do, and the way, the way that we know it's the work the Father gave him to do is because all the works that he's doing are works that were prophesied of him to do. The Old Testament said, when the Christ comes, this is what he's going to do. He's going to give sight to the blind and make the lame walk, and uh, he's going to raise the dead and uh, make the blind to see and so forth. Uh, that was all prophesied, and so Jesus came and did all that. And uh, he uh, spoke the words that uh, the Father said uh, he would speak and so forth. And so Jesus is very much connected to the Old Testament. Uh, just before his ascension into heaven, he took the disciples aside. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed them how all the scriptures spoke of him. So Jesus is not uh, trying to disassociate himself from the Old Testament. He simply knows his audience and knows that his audience pride themselves on their adherence to the Bible. They uh, claim to be people of the book, people of the law. And uh, we have Moses, you know, we're, we're, we're Moses' uh, disciples. And uh, we follow what he says. And because they prided himself on that, he reminds them of, of that, reminds them of that by saying, uh, uh, it is uh, written, is it not written in your law? But notice also that he quotes a psalm, and we read that psalm, Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph, and he, he calls it the law. Is, is the psalms, are, are the psalms law? Well, yes they are, because the, the word law, as it's used in the scripture, has both a narrow reference and a, a broad reference. Narrowly, it can refer to just the Ten Commandments as the law of God, the Ten Commandments. But it can also refer a little bit more broadly to uh, the five, first five books of the Bible. Moses uh, gave us the law. The law came through Moses, John says uh, in the beginning of his gospel. Uh, but it also can be used as a reference to the whole Old Testament. And I think we can, by analogy, also apply it to the New Testament as well. In uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, uh, 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah and says, the law says, meaning the prophet Isaiah is included under the law. Why, why, does, why does the word law have this broad meaning? Well, because the whole Bible is God's revelation of himself. He reveals himself when he talks about himself and tells us uh, what he's like. He reveals himself when he does something in human history, when he intervenes and comes down and comes near and acts. That tells us something about him. Uh, when he tells us what to do, that's uh, telling us what he wants, and so we learn about him. There's really nothing in the Bible that doesn't tell us about God in some way. 
And every aspect of what the Bible tells us about God has uh, a, a moral uh, demand, makes a moral demand upon us. For example, the Bible says God is holy. Well, because God is holy, Jesus says, you be holy because your Father in heaven is holy. You know, the Bible says God is love. And then, as you have been loved, so love one another. The Bible tells us God is a forgiving God. And, and we're told, as you have been forgiven, forgive other people. So every, everything we learn about God makes a demand upon us. And so the whole Bible, indeed, uh, makes a moral demand upon us and can be uh, spoken of as the law. But the thing that I want you to recognize here is that Jesus is is referring to uh, an obscure author of Scripture, uh, Asaph, we know very little about him, and to a bit of, of Hebrew poetry, which is, uh, well, it's not uh, everybody's favorite passage. It's not like Psalm 23 or John 3.16 or something like that. It's hardly one that you, you uh, go back to again and again so that you can meditate on this, although uh, it is very applicable to our situation when you have bad government and the whole earth is shaken, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. And why are they shaken? Because the people who are in charge are not honest, because they are not uh, wise, because they don't do what's right. And, and when uh, the leadership doesn't do what is right, everybody's life is turned into turmoil. And uh, that's a very contemporary situation in every age. Uh, there's hardly an age of human history where that isn't uh, manifested in some way. But uh, here this is a rather uh, uh, obscure author and uh, psalm that we don't think about very often. And Jesus is quoting it as having authority. And it's important for us to, to recognize that, that this, Jesus expects them to receive this as authoritative over their lives. Your scripture says this. This is something you need to think about. This is something you need to consider and, and bow to and, and obey because this is your scriptures. This is your law. I say that because there are uh, people in uh, in the broader church and sometimes even in Reformed churches that, that tell us that there are parts of the Bible that uh, don't apply anymore. That uh, there are things in the Bible that we, we don't need to, to listen to anymore. Uh, we uh, heard uh, in the 1980s uh, that uh, Scripture is culturally conditioned and therefore only culturally normative. And what that means, that's a fancy way of saying it was so influenced by the times in which it was written, culturally uh, formed, that it is normative or the rule only for the time in which it was written. And so uh, if Paul says one thing about uh, ministers and elders and deacons, well, that's fine for, for the first century, but that's not for us. Uh, it was conditioned by his culture. He was reflecting his culture, and that's, it's not God's word for us. Or uh, in 1973, there was a, a synodical uh, study committee that studied uh, homosexuality and uh, issued a report in which uh, they said, uh, and I'm not quoting it exactly, but if you want the, the exact quote, uh, it's page uh, 619 in the Acts of Synod, 1973, 619, 1973. But they say that uh, uh, the Old Testament does not distinguish between homosexuality and homosexualism. 
and uh, homosexuality is the practice of homosexuality, or homosexualism is the practice of it, homosexuality is just a disposition. And they said, uh, some people are born with this disposition. And it said the, the Bible, they didn't know the difference between stealing and kleptomania. And they didn't, they didn't uh, recognize that some people take things because they, they're mentally disordered, you know. And, and it's not the same as stealing if you're a kleptomaniac because it's like being, if you're a kleptomaniac, you're, you have a mental disease. And we don't punish people who are born with a club foot or born with uh, uh, color blindness. And uh, we shouldn't uh, make people feel bad if they're born with a, a mental illness like uh, kleptomania or homosexuality. And uh, they uh, say it at one point, uh, whether the judgment which the Old Testament makes on homosexualism would be the same if such a distinction had been known. We cannot say at this point, but therefore we cannot apply the Old Testament prohibition without considering whether our knowledge of homosexuality may not modify to some degree our moral judgment about the homosexual practices of such persons. They're basically saying, we're smarter than the authors of the Old Testament. I thought the authors of the Old Testament were the Holy Spirit, but uh, we're smarter. We know things they don't know, and so we can't apply what they apply. But Jesus has no qualms about going to the Old Testament and saying, this is God's will for you, and you need to conform to it. And uh, if we are, consider ourselves faithful followers of Jesus Christ, then we need to treat the Old Testament and the New Testament as, uh, as God's word for us. Now, what does he do with this psalm? Well, he points to the fact that God is addressing a, a council of earthly judges. He calls a, a meeting. Uh, the, I suppose it's not a physical meeting where they all come in one place, although it might be a prophet gathers them together. But uh, the psalmist is merely addressing all the judges on God's behalf. God has taken his uh, place uh, in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment and he says to them, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Human judges are part of the divine council. And uh, God says to them, you are gods. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Why does he say that? Well, because they represent God. You know, Romans 13, the powers that be are ordained by God. They are his ministers uh, representing his authority to punish the evildoer and to reward the righteous. Uh, He calls them gods with a lowercase g. And he calls them sons of the Most High or sons of God uh, because they represent him. They're supposed to represent him. And uh, even Pontius Pilate uh, represented God, and he represented God by uh, declaring Jesus innocent, because that was God's verdict also, and he represented uh, God when he condemned Jesus to death, because that was God's will also, that uh, he be condemned to death. Well, he calls them gods, he calls them sons of the Most High, and Jesus points out that men and women to whom the word of God came, men called to administer the word of judges, are addressed by God as gods and as sons of the Most High. Uh, And since the Bible does that, why should they be mad at Jesus when he uses similar terms to describe himself? 
Here God is giving divine honors, not divinity, but divine honors to human beings. And Jesus is also speaking in a way that gives himself divine honors, although because he is divine. And uh, they say, uh, Jesus is saying, if the scriptures can say this to humans, why are you mad at me for saying those kind of things of myself? Now, this doesn't prove Jesus' divinity and take it by itself. All it would do is prove his humanity. Uh, but uh, he does uh, not leave them uh, there as if he were only admitting that he was a, a mere human. He goes on especially to say that uh, uh, he is the one who is, uh, uh, how do you say to him whom the Father has sanctified and whom and sent into the world, you blaspheme because I say I am the Son of God. Now he identifies himself as one the Father has sanctified and sent into the world. What's that all about? Well, remember that psalm, how it ends, Psalm 82, how it ends. It ends with that call from the psalmist, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. He's asking God to come do that. Now, what do we know about Jesus and judgment? Well, we we know from, from John 5 that uh, all judgment has been given by the Father to the Son. And what do we know about Jesus with regard to the nations? Well, we know that he's supposed to inherit the nations. Judging uh, uh, and uh, inheriting the nations is is something that belongs to Jesus. And so I'm I'm convinced, uh, and uh, there are others also who believe that Psalm 82, verse 8, where it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, where you shall inherit all nations. That, that verse is fulfilled. The, God answers the psalmist's request by sending Jesus into the world and entrusting all judgment unto him and giving him the nations as his inheritance. And so uh, when Jesus says uh, in verse uh, 36 of our text in John 11, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and set into the world... Jesus is making reference to that. Now, I don't think his audience at that time understood that he was referring to verse 8 of Psalm 82. But uh, John, the gospel writer, records this so that we can see the connection and see that Jesus isn't just saying, well, I'm like the human judges and I can, I can give myself uh, words that sound divine, but I'm not really divine. No, he, he goes on to say that's, that's, uh, those words are certainly not inappropriate for me but they are especially appropriate for me because I am more than those human judges. I'm the one who comes in fulfillment of Psalm 82, verse 8, uh, to judge the world and inherit the nations. And uh, so again, he is pointing to uh, his divinity. Uh, For our benefit, he adds, uh, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And uh, to point the fact that, yeah, God is supposed to come and judge and inherit the nations, but the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. So that Jesus could say to uh, his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're, we're together in this, in, in all that we do. Well, take note that Jesus had some success using this argument. In verse 31... They took up stones to stone him. But in verse 39, they only sought to take him in custody. 
and uh, they weren't throwing those stones at him. Uh, he seems to have disarmed them somewhat. They were going to take him into custody. If they had stoned him, of course, they would have been guilty of rioting and putting a man to death without uh, the approval of the Roman government. Remember, they had to get approval from Pilate to put Jesus to death because they didn't have authority to do it on their own. Although the Romans sometimes overlooked that if no Roman citizen was injured, as in the case of uh, the stoning of Deacon Stephen. Notice when the persecution starts, it starts with the deacons. Uh, Men, uh, take note of that. Uh, And uh, they could have probably stoned him here and gotten away with it if uh, uh, no Roman citizens were hurt. But he does calm them down and uh, is able to, uh, to get away from them, in part because they accepted his argument that the Scriptures cannot be broken. If the Scriptures say it, then it has to be so. The Scriptures cannot be broken. What does that phrase mean? Let's, let's look into that. Uh, Jesus' basic principle here, Scripture cannot be broken. What does it mean? Well, if, if you make a promise and you don't keep the promise, you break the promise. Your words fall to the ground, so to speak. Your words don't mean anything because you didn't keep your promise. And if you were to make a prediction, say, I know what's going to happen tomorrow, and tomorrow comes and goes and it doesn't happen, then, uh, yeah, your word uh, falls to the ground again. Your words are broken. Your, your uh, prediction of the future is, uh, is broken. Uh, and, and if you simply say something that isn't true, you make a statement contrary to fact, then that too is a broken word. Uh, the fact that Scripture cannot be broken means it cannot be annulled, it cannot be set aside, it cannot be uh, proven false. It is the, the standard of truth and truthfulness. Uh, Jesus here is, uh, is teaching what theologians call the, the plenary authority of Scripture. Now, plenary is not a word that uh, we use a lot. Uh, I first came in contact with it when I went to a conference and they had uh, plenary sessions and breakout sessions. And the word plenary simply means full and complete, full and complete. And the plenary sessions were was when the full number of people gathered together in one place. The breakout sessions is when we broke out into small groups. But plenary means full and complete. And so Jesus is teach- when Jesus says the Scriptures cannot be broken, He's teaching their full authority, their complete authority. They, are, they have absolute authority over us. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, plenary authority because Daniel said to him, whom you wish to make alive, you, you keep alive. Whom you want to put to death, you put to death. You know, you're an absolute monarch. You can do anything yourself. You have plenary authority. You have full and complete authority. Well, that's what the Scripture has. It has full authority. And there is no saying, yes, but. The Bible says this. Yes, but because of some other thing other than the Bible, we can lay the Bible's authority aside. No. It has full authority. It has complete authority. Uh, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just the well-known prophecies. It's not just uh, the red letters in the red letter editions of the New Testament that have authority. Uh, it's the whole Bible. Even uh, a, uh, a psalm by an obscure author named Asaph 
uh, a bit of Hebrew poetry, it has authority that can uh, disarm uh, an angry mob uh, if they recognize that authority. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, not one uh, jot, not one tittle, not one uh, iota or dot, not the smallest part of the smallest uh, Hebrew letter uh, shall uh, fall away and uh, will pass away until uh, the full, full law is accomplished. This means that, that you and I should believe the Bible. We should believe the Bible. Because Scripture cannot be broken, we ought to accept it as authoritative for our lives and every aspect of it authoritative of our lives. For the first 17 centuries about of the, of the Christian uh, uh, era, uh, it was pretty much understood that if you became a Christian, people didn't have to become Christians, but if they became Christians, they recognized that the Bible and the whole Bible was authoritative for their lives. But then came the... Uh, the age of enlightenment, and uh, people began to uh, say, no, uh, we, uh, we can sit in judgment on all things, including on the Bible, and decide whether we like this part or that part or whatever, and, and reject this and, and keep that. And so uh, even in the church, you have those who are saying, yeah, it's culturally conditioned, therefore it's only culturally normative, and we have to... Uh, Pray that the Spirit would lead us now to understand what His will is for us today. Uh, he, uh, he's teaching us that we need to recognize this as authoritative. But in our, in our highly individualized and subjective and anti-authoritarian culture, where everyone considers himself or, or herself to be their own ultimate authority, it becomes very fashionable to choose between some parts of the Bible and others. Uh, now, there are those who say, you know, that's foolishness. Uh, we, sh- we shouldn't have an absolute authority. Uh, Sigmund Freud reacted against this, and he said, uh, that's being immature. You know, if you want an absolute authority, you're like a little child. Little children want everything black and white, and that's the essence of of child, childishness is to, to want just everything to be just so, black and white and no ambiguity. But uh, Sigmund Freud said uh, becoming mature means recognizing and accepting that there, there are no clear answers and uh, therefore we're free to make up our own rules. Well, he was wrong about uh, what is maturity and immaturity. The essence of, of immaturity is not... Uh, uh, childishness is not uh, not wanting uh, black and white, but uh, the essence of immaturity is self-centeredness and, and selfishness and thinking the world re- resolve, revolves around you. You know, every parent knows what, what happens at birthday parties when you have several children of different ages and it happens to be one of the younger ones that's having the birthday uh, he's a little slow or she's a little slow unwrapping the present and so older brother or sister wants to help them and, and mom and dad said, no, no, it's his birthday. Let him open the present, you know. And then, and then the present gets opened and, and, and do the older siblings say, oh, we're so excited for you. We're so happy. We hope you enjoy playing with this toy and, and we'll leave you to be to play with this toy as much as you want. No, that's not what the children say. They say, can I have it now? Can I look at it? Can I see it? Can, can I take it? You know, and, and, Sometimes they don't even ask, they just grab it because 
Everybody wants that, that toy. Everybody thinks the world revolves around me and my wants are the most important thing. And if I can't get what I want, then I lie down on the floor and, and bound my fists and kick my feet and throw a tantrum because I want what I want when I want it. That's the essence of immaturity. Teenagers, if you, uh, if you want to uh, convince your parents that uh, you ought to be uh, treated as uh, an adult, then uh, show them that you recognize that uh, maturity means uh, no longer living for self, but uh, living for others and considering others uh, better than yourselves. Uh, the true mark of uh, maturity is uh, recognizing that we are creatures of God, created by Him and for Him and are answerable to Him, and that He's the center of the universe, not us. Uh, he's the most important person, and His will for our lives is the most important person. You know, the, the world also doesn't like the idea that, that we believe in, in absolute truth. Uh, I was reminded of that again, uh, listening to uh, one of the podcasts I listened to, and uh, reminding me that 20 years ago, when two planes flew into the Twin Towers, uh, there were Christians who responded to that by saying, this is the end of postmodernism. This is the end of postmodernism, which uh, postmodernism simply means relativism, no right or wrong, no absolute truth. You know, that's the postmodern world. The modern world believed in truth and pursued truth and pursued learning and so forth, but the postmodern world says, no, everything is relative and... Uh, Sex is not biological; it's a social, contra, uh, cultural uh, uh, thing, and and so forth. You know, and everybody is turned within themselves. Uh, that's postmodernism. But uh, 20 years ago, they said, "No, what happened on 9/11? That that's the end of postmodernism because now, now the world will see that there is absolute evil, and if there's absolute evil, they'll be forced to recognize that there is absolute good because the the evil that was done on that day was so great that everyone condemned it. Well, there were some, of course, who cheered it, but in some parts of the world. But uh, uh, in our Western world, our postmodern world, it was condemned as a great act of evil. And uh, so we thought, well, if the, if the world is going to wake up to the existence of of evil, maybe they'll rec- recognize that there there are absolutes, there are things that are true. Uh, for everybody, true truth, what uh, Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth, true that is truth that is true for everybody. And uh, this was a truth that was manifest, that this is evil, and, and the opposite must be, be good. Life is, and, and love are good, and this hate and murder are, are evil. But sadly, that's not what happened. It wasn't the end of postmodernism. What it was, was simply the world saying, aha, These people who flew these planes into these towers, they believed in absolute truth. And anybody who believes in absolute truth must be a threat to our freedom and our democracy and so forth. So that a Bible study group meeting in in somebody's house in Iowa could be a terrorist cell because they believe in absolute truth. And so instead of the end of postmodernism, you have the world even more antagonistic toward people who believe in absolute truth, not recognizing the huge difference between 
what one group believes and what another group believes. You know, it's true uh, from, from the world's perspective, I'm a fundamentalist because I believe in fundamental truth. But the fundamental truths that I believe in are quite different than the fundamental truths that a, a terrorist believes in. He believes in a, in a God who uh, uh, gives you one chance to convert and then says, kill the infidel. Uh, God, the fundamental truth of my religion is a, is a God who says, you all deserve to die, but I'm going to come and die in your place so that you don't have to die. And as I have sacrificed myself for you in death by an atoning sacrifice to pay for your sins, now you are commanded to go as a living sacrifice and serve the needs of others and to love the world in my name. Well, that's, a, that's a different fundamental, quite a different fundamental. And it's, it's not just the fact that we believe in fundamentals that makes us uh, a terror, but what fundamental do you believe in that makes someone either evil or good? Well, the Bible is absolute truth, and we're called to, to believe it, and we're called to obey it. Sometimes we, uh, we get discouraged in our attempts to obey. I was reminded of that uh, a number of weeks ago when Mr. Al Banstra preached for us, and he, he preached from Psalm 1. And uh, every time I read that psalm, I... Well, not every time, but sometimes I, I, I get a little depressed when I read that psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scorners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and as the law meditates day and night. And I say, yeah, that's what you have to do to be blessed. <laughs> I haven't measured up yet. What, what hope is there for me to be blessed uh, I have walked in the counsel of the ungodly. I have stood in the path of sinners. I have sat in the seat of the scornful. I have not delighted in the law of the Lord uh, with heart and soul and mind and strength and loved my neighbor as myself. I, I've fallen down again and again. Does that mean I can never be blessed? But then I remember the opening words, blessed is the man. Is there a man? Who has done this? Is there a man who is indeed blessed for having not set, uh, walked in the counsel of the godly, nor stood in the path of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers? Is there a man who has delighted in the law of the Lord day and night, and who, who bears fruit in season, whose leaf never withers, who prospers in all he's done, he's done? Yes, there is a man. There is a man who has done that. And it's the man we've been thinking about, the man Jesus Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ. He has done that. And because he has not only done that, but also atoned for our sins, then we through faith in God, faith in him, are forgiven our sins. And not only forgiven our sins, but we're strengthened with his spirit so that we can begin. Light just went in my mouth. Excuse me. We can begin to obey the law of God and, uh, and follow him in gratitude for what he has done for us. Uh, Jesus concludes this passage here by again appealing to the Jews to, uh, to believe in him. If you don't believe me for what I say, you should believe me for what I say, but if you don't believe me for what I say, believe me for what I do. And, uh, of course, he said that 
even before he had done his greatest work, the work at the cross and at the grave, dying for our sins and being resurrected again to new life, uh, he, uh, he did a great work. And you have seen that work on the pages of Scripture. You have heard about it again and again. And he says to you, believe, believe, because John writes this gospel so that we might have believe in him and through him have eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for Jesus. We thank you that he indeed is one with you and that you are in him and he is in you and that uh, he is divine as well as fully human. We thank you that he loved us and gave his life for us. We pray, Father, that you would uh, direct our hearts to him in faith, uh, in gratitude, so that we may strive to live under your word, live under your law, uh, in gratitude for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.